And uh, if you've got a Bible, will you open it at 1 Timothy 2, where we've been sort of for the last few weeks. It's, it's, I'll have to explain to the visitors a little bit of what we're doing. Because I'm about to read to you in 1 Timothy 2, one of the most difficult and controversial sets of verses to modern ears in the New Testament, probably. Certainly in what's called the pastoral epistles. Uh, these verses, I'm just going to read verses 11 to 15, could be arguably some of the most contentious in the New Testament. So if you're a visitor, you've come on an interesting week. Now, in fact, this is the third week, if not, if you include the evenings, it's four, I suppose, but it's third week that this passage has been in the background of what I've been doing. And I, I do need to just say that to you and to say that uh, what I say today will, I hope, be an exercise in how we learn from the Bible and how we exegete a passage. Exegesis is when you apply rules of interpretation and understand what it means then to understand what it means now for us. And frankly, my approach this morning is going to be quite like that, a sort of exegesis of these few verses. But I want to give a brief bit of background because I've got to run you in uh, and, and get you up to speed if you're a visitor. And even if you weren't, it won't be uh, harmful to do that. Just a few minutes in a minute. But first of all, I'm going to read this passage. Don't leave until you've heard me speak about it. All right? <laughs> 1 Timothy 2, verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. As you see, that is quite a difficult passage. Not only the main thrust of it, but even the last verse is a somewhat puzzling verse. I love difficult passages of the Bible. It's just, it's what, I, it's not the only thing, I love lots of things, but I find that very interesting. So I don't find them uh, upsetting at first. I, I, mean, I find I want to find out what on earth is going on here and what's been spoken about. So I do plan to approach it that way. And just to run into it, we have already considered a few weeks ago, but it's good to remind ourselves how Christians view the Bible. And it's very important we get this right, right now. We do believe, if we're Christians, that the Bible is the Word of God. We believe it's probably the most uh, clear and special revelation that God gives us. We know God reveals himself in many ways. There's the inner conscience, there's creation around. And of course, there's Jesus Christ, who's really the most special revelation. But most of our information about Jesus is, of course, from the Bible. So it focuses down on the fact that we believe this to be the Word of God. Now, that's summarised in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 to 17. I've only got a few verses that are on the screen, and I hope they'll come up so you don't have to turn to them. But this is what Christians believe about the Bible. Let's just let that clear in our spirits and minds. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We do believe all Scripture, including 1 Timothy 2, verses, say, 11 to 15. We believe all Scripture is God-breathed, inspired by the Holy Spirit. The people wrote in a natural way. They wrote knowing what they were writing. They were not taken over like zombies. Paul was writing to Timothy, and he wanted Timothy to get something. 
And he wrote to Timothy in a context, for a reason. He didn't write with 21st century Winchester in mind. He wrote with Timothy and Ephesus in mind. But the Holy Spirit inspired that as he did things that Moses wrote and David wrote. And out of those, something of God's word was encapsulated. God's message, God's word to us. Now, God's word is in a way something more than the book. We read the book, we study the book, we learn from the book, but the word is a living thing. It's God's truth that comes into our spirits and ultimately into our mouths, into our lives. And we speak it and live by it. And it becomes a sword then. Because the Holy Spirit works with the Word, and that is the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God in you, active and used, and lived by. And you want to live by it. If you're a serious spirit-filled Christian, you want to live by the Word of God. You want to believe it and understand it. It is important to me, vitally important, I trust it is to you, that that I hear what God says to me. This book is not just like any other old book. If I can use a brief analogy... It's like getting a letter from a well-respected, important, much-loved friend. Don't know what, what words to use. You really want to understand what they're saying. You really want it to get it right. You love this person. You respect them. You want to please them and obey them. So what are they actually saying to you? That is how you read it. Now, that's how it is. The loved, respected friend is God himself. God is for us. God is a God of revelation. God is a God who wants us to know his word and to believe it and obey it. He knows it's the way to live. He knows it's the way to be successful in daily life. He's he's got our best intentions at heart when he sent us his word. He sent us his word to bring life and hope to us. And his spirit works with his word. The word and spirit work together. They've always worked together since creation. At creation, the Holy Spirit hovered, waiting for the word. Let there be. And the Spirit of God moved on the word. And that's what happens now. The Spirit of God actualizes the living word of God. It's a very important working together, the word and the spirit. Now, we therefore come to verses like this, and we want to say, what is God saying? It's important to me. I don't come thinking I'm the one in control here. God's the one in control. If God is actually saying that women should be silent in church, I want to know that and I need to obey it. And of course, sincere Christians, male and female, through history, have endeavoured to do that. But we, we have to say, is that actually what God's saying? And, and, and we can say that about a number of difficult passages. We want to obey him. We want to do the right thing. What is he actually saying to us? He is saying things, actually in these verses, about men and women in a church context, because that is the context. Verses 8 down, well more than that, all these verses are about church really, and about the church community. So he is saying something. What is he saying to us? And actually to understand it, this and any other passage, including some of the more obviously understandable ones, we, we always have a sort of slightly two level thing. We're looking for the fundamental timeless truths, which are always there and sometimes very obviously there. But we are also aware of the cultural application of those truths at a time and a place. I've used before the example of Jesus telling his disciples after he'd washed their feet, I'm your master and I've washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. 
And clearly we can see there powerful, powerful demonstration of servant leadership. Powerful demonstration of what real leadership is in the kingdom of God. Jesus went on to teach about it. So it's not like in the world. But we don't necessarily feel that it's a a proscriptive command that leaders should wash people's feet. They don't need to do anything else, but they do need to wash their feet. In fact, that would be an unreal way of applying it. A far more realistic way would be that leaders at all sorts of levels need to be prepared to get their hands dirty. For example, doing the washing up, helping with the practical things. They shouldn't be too high and mighty for that. And probably a modern equivalent to washing the disciples' feet, which of course was not what Jesus did all the time. He had other things to do, leaders, but he wasn't afraid to do that. And when there was a conflict amongst the disciples as who would humble themselves and do it, Jesus did it. And when there's a conflict, when, you know, no leader should be too proud to do the equivalent. Maybe the equivalent in modern society would be cleaning the toilets at one of these camps at Brockenhurst or, or, uh, or doing the washing up at the end of the community group. Not that that's the job of the leader all the time, but you're not frightened to do that and you're able to do it and when it needs to be done, you do it. And in fact, to just wash feet would be an artificial application of a profound truth. Because in our culture, washing feet isn't a big deal, but washing up can be or cleaning the toilets at a camp can be, or some other equivalent, putting the chairs away. So, actually, we need to see that's always true, the fundamental truth, and there will have been a now application of it at the time. And it's so as we learn what it meant to them then, what the, the, the fundamental word of God to them was then, we can more accurately learn what it is to us now. And what God says to us now will not contradict what he was saying to them then. It will be in harmony. It will just be applied. It will be transposed into modern Britain. So we don't come to this throwing the whole baby out with the bathwater. We can't do that. That's not how real Christians approach passages like this. So it doesn't work for 21st century Britain. Forget it. Load of old rubbish. That's, if you're a believer in Jesus, you don't do that. But you do understand that we have got to, like the foot washing, we've got to learn what is God saying and how does that work out for us here and now? Well, we did a little bit of work on that when we looked at the previous verses on on clothing because it's a way you can apply that. But then last week we looked at men and women as God intended them to be, trying to see the big truth that is behind this. And I spoke on equality and complementarity because I believe that is how God clearly, I would say, from the Bible, made us. Men and women are equal in personhood, redemptively equal, but God created us with different functions and roles in some areas. And the model is Trinity. We are made in the image of God. The way the Trinity works is a model for us as humanity. The three persons of the Trinity are co-equal. They're they're all God, their deity and their personhood are absolutely equal. But the Father is the head of Team Trinity. And the Son and the Spirit take their lead or submit to the Father in a mutual love relationship. All three perform different roles at various times. I've indicated possibly in creation. There's that sense of the Father declaring and the Spirit making it happen. Certainly in salvation, it's very clear. God sent his son, the son obediently and willingly and understandingly and and, and in full knowledge of what he was doing, came and submitted, as it were, to the father, which he clearly did and Jesus clearly said he was doing. When he completed the work, died and risen again, 
He'd gone back to heaven. He sent the Spirit who really actualizes the whole thing in your life. When you become a Christian, you're born again of the Holy Spirit. And you have the Spirit of God in you. And he makes real for you what the Father had planned and the Son had completed. But of course, God is one being. And that's difficult for us. One being, three persons. Because we're not like that. But there's something we can understand in our team humanity. Because God said that without man and woman together, we cannot do what he commissions us to do. Adam was incomplete until Eve was alongside him. There was no sense in which she was a duplicate or she just, you know, was a bit of a spare part. No, she was essential. Adam could not do it. That is man, male and female. Made in the image of God, male and female. So male and female together reflect something in the image of God. God has something of those female characteristics we sometimes talk about, as well as so-called male ones. God is, to some extent, reflected, although it's obviously a limited reflection, in the wholeness of man and woman together. But there's something in the very way it works that tells us about God. That to work properly, two co-equal elements in mutual respect and love actually fulfill different functions. And and team humanity, God made Adam the head, or the leader of it. And he made Eve the helper or sustainer alongside him. That's what we looked at last week. Now that is relevant because when you come to this verse, these verses, there are two verses that refer to Adam and Eve. Verses 13 and 14. And the big thing this reminds us of is this. That the created order is non-reversible. It's normative. It's not to do with the fall. The fall corrupted it and ruined it. But it was a created order. It's not created by the fall. And although it's not PC and fashionable to say this, that is how men and women were made, as God made them with Adam and Eve. And so Paul has that in mind as he applies it to a current situation. And that is transcultural. That is universal. That is non-reversible. That there are fundamental principles here that you apply to a situation. And as Paul addresses a situation, quite a serious state of affairs actually, in the church in Ephesus, and exhorts Timothy to address them, he brings into play a universal principle that is in his spirit and mind. That's why there's a reference to Adam and Eve. The Bible is clear. Eve ignored her divinely ordained position. Instead of helping and sustaining Adam in his headship role, she listened to Satan, took the initiative after the devil had beguiled her and offered the fruit to her husband. She became the leader. Adam, to his stupid folly, became the follower. He violated his role too. And when that happened, trouble ensued. The Bible is very clear that Adam is totally to blame. It's in Adam we all die. He carried the greater responsibility of headship. He has the greater condemnation. And actually Eve's deception, I don't think has anything to do with naivety, it's she's deceived by violating her position. I think that's the sense of what Paul's saying. That she moved out of what she should do, took the initiative, became the leader, Adam became the follower, became gullible himself more almost than Eve. And he, that led to trouble. That led to trouble. And so the big picture is that when you lose sight of how God made us as men and women, you do open yourself up to problems fundamentally eventually. That's what Paul has in mind. 
Now, I want with that to look at what he actually says in some of these verses. And verses 11 and 12 are obviously slightly make a start when we read them and we've just read them. I think to do this, I cannot avoid a detailed study. Uh, if, you, if you're here regularly, you know I do like to study the Bible properly, but I wouldn't always be as pernickety as I am this morning. But I've got to be to do this justice and to help you to understand. Because I want you to go away at least understanding that the Bible is a wonderful book that you can learn from. Of course, the reality is it wasn't written in English. It was written in, this bit was written in Greek. The Bible originally was written in three languages. It's Hebrew, Aramaic, some of it, and Greek. And that isn't English. And words do carry meanings, and they do need translating. And when things are translated, they are interpreted by the way people translate them. And so sometimes, this is not the normal way you have to worry, because normally it's much clearer. Sometimes you have to be careful about the detail of how things read. So let me make a few things clear. In fact, um, uh, I just, I actually, I glanced at the notes because I just want to say something a bit loud and clear before I even get to this detail. I don't want to miss this point. If you just read these two verses, it's very easy to see why people say the Apostle Paul was a woman hater. If you take these two verses in isolation, that's how some people scornfully point at Paul. Now, most of us do not see Paul as just Paul. We believe the Holy Spirit's guiding him and all the rest of it. But even the evangelical Christians can get to a point of almost saying that, say, well, Paul had a bit of a problem here. That's because we're doing the first bad thing about interpretation. We're not letting Scripture interpret Scripture. We're focusing on two verses and not thinking about the big picture. If you glance at the big picture, which we've no time to explore, trust me on what I'm about to say to you, we would see that Paul is not at all a woman hater. Far from it. In at least five separate letters, he writes very warmly and favourably about named women. He, he speaks very favourably about Phoebe and Priscilla and Mary and Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, Julia, Aphia, Lois, Eunice, Yodia, Syntyche and many others. And he, you will find phrases like, these women who, you know, contended for the gospel alongside me, who was like a mother to me. He, he is very honouring of women. This is in first century uh, uh, Asia, minor. It wasn't normal to be like that. There's something of God's spirit there in the very way Paul, the ex-rabbi, speaks and writes very warmly. He encourages women in various aspects of ministry, older women to the younger women, deacons, who I believe, we'll get to that if we have time, maybe tonight. I believe in the next chapter, the deacons bit, verse 11, is, uh, is not about wives, it's about women. And I think there's a very good reason for saying that, or several good reasons. He, he talks also about other women who help him and help others. In fact, it's the Apostle Paul who gives the most outstanding and clear a definition of the redemptive equality of men and women in Galatians 3, particularly verse 28, but all the verses around there are the most outstanding teaching on the radical nature of the gospel and what it does to break down all barriers and make us one in Christ. It's the Apostle Paul who writes the beautiful instructions of Ephesians 5 to husbands and wives and particularly makes much of the high calling of husbands to be like Christ to their wives. It's the Apostle Paul, even when he's dealing with that subject briefly, throws in little sentences like, husbands, don't be harsh with your wives. 
And he's, he's very, very sensitive to some of those issues. He commends marriage. He's not, a, he was a celibate single man. He's not a woman hater. He's not, he's not interested in women. He's just, a, it's not like that at all. So let's get that right out of the way, even as we look at these verses. So what do we begin to learn as we look at these verses? So I'm going to be fairly detailed. Well, we have to say that the problem was actually false teaching. That was the big problem that is filling Paul's thoughts about Ephesus, where Timothy is. He's left Timothy in Ephesus, and there is a major problem with false teaching. Two leaders, no less, leaders in the church, named as it is towards the end of chapter 1, two leaders in the church have had to be put under church discipline for teaching false teaching. There is a demonic element to it. That will go up two verses, I think. I'll just highlight Paul's concern of the serious nature of what's going on. He keeps coming back to this false teaching. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits, things taught by demons. Then he refers in 5.15, which I have to say in context is particularly about some of the women getting drawn into this. Some have in fact already turned away to follow Satan. He sees it as a spiritual battle that is going on. Hence, his reference probably to Adam and Eve is not just sort of stylized. He's probably aware of what he would see as a demonic attack behind this false teaching. If you read, for example, 1 Timothy 5, which we're certainly not going to do, but about the first 16 verses, you will see woven into that a significant concern about how some of the women have been drawn away into this false teaching and are becoming a danger to themselves and to others. And he is exhorting Timothy to address this carefully and clearly. These particular verses are also an exhortation to Timothy to address a developing problem in the Ephesian church. In the context of their public gatherings, some women are undoubtedly usurping their position, as as Paul is explaining it, taking authority, taking a lead, and possibly teaching false teaching. There's certainly something going on that is very serious and quite public. Now, when we actually look at the words, we need to look at them carefully. In verse 11, a woman should learn. Now, we can lock on to quietness and full submission. But let's notice, he's not saying they're ignorant and, you know, teach them. If they want to learn, which is in itself quite revolutionary for the first century, they have to have the right attitude as they learn. And actually, these verses are primarily about attitude. They really are about attitude. So the words that come next, quietness and full submission. Full submission sounds extremely heavy to our ears, but actually really means overall, not just lip service, not just in one or two places. They need to be submissive in a general attitude. Some of these people possibly might have been saying, well, I'm submitting over here, but they did behave differently over there. That's more the sense. There needs to be an overall attitude. Quietness and then silent in verse 12. How do we handle that? I am absolutely sure it does not mean wordless, that they can't speak. Now, some Christian groups and denominations have interpreted it that way. I am absolutely certain it doesn't. It's very easy to tell you why. In 1 Corinthians 11... Paul talks about women praying and prophesying. Clearly he expects, let's remember this is the Holy Spirit, expects women to be involved in the active public process of church, praying and prophesying. 
We get other examples of women prophets and others. So it can't mean wordless. What does it mean? It can't mean they don't speak at all. Well, we are in a little bit of area of problems of translation. Quietness is a little bit more accurate. The word silent in verse 12 is an inaccurate translation, I would say. The word is actually quiet. And it's exactly the same word that is translated differently at the beginning of chapter 2. If you want to look, verse 2 of chapter 2, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives, that word translated quiet is exactly the same word in Greek. And so there's a different translation. And so actually, the word should be quiet. Now we'll just hold that for a few moments, we'll get back to it in a minute. Then he says not to have authority over a man. Now, again, the Greek phrase is a very strong phrase. It means to control, to dominate, to compel, or to lord it over. So he's using a word about a very strong, domineering, controlling authority, which is actually by no means the normal description of any form of leadership in the kingdom of God, actually. But it's certainly not about real leadership. It's not the only form of leadership. It may not be a critical comment particularly. He's he's saying, I am not allowing them to have that dominant controlling authority that some of them are exercising. The word teach is again a word used for a particular sort of teaching, doctrinal teaching to the whole church. Perhaps what I'm doing this morning to some degree. And in several places elsewhere, the actual process of teaching is honourably commended to women, just using the Bible, that you get older women told to teach younger women. Uh, Priscilla, alongside her husband Aquila, was teaching Apollos. So it is a particular teach word. It's about doctrinal uh, teaching. Paul is very sensitive to the problems in Ephesus, and rightly so. But fundamentally, this is an attitude thing. He's talking about a quiet demeanour, not absolute silence. He's talking about not bringing that domineering authority, usurping authority over the men and actually perhaps taking control of the situation. That's what he's talking about. And from other verses in Timothy, both 1 and 2, but particularly 1 Timothy, it is clear that there was some sort of trait in some women of domineering, busybody trait, which was caught up in the false teaching. Men were involved in the false teaching, two men, I've been put out of the church because of it. So it's not about just women. But there was a vulnerability here and it had caught a light amongst the church. It's dangerous when we violate God's order, Paul's saying. And when you're in a vulnerable setting like this, it is very dangerous. The redeemed community should reflect God's order and God's grace. And it's not doing so at Ephesus at the moment. And so Paul is strong in his exhortation to Timothy to correct that. So how does that all apply to us? That's our little bit of exegesis. How does that all apply to us? Well, sadly, sometimes there are similar scenarios to Ephesus. I don't believe we're in one at the moment, but sometimes there are. And sometimes we can learn from this, there needs to be a strong lead. We don't do that here. That is out of order. Now, that may not apply to men and women only. It may apply in many other areas. But we need to remember the Bible, rightly, is much more uh, a timeless insight into God's approach to things than it is a document 
um, sort of uh, fashioned for our modern culture totally. And thank God it isn't. Our modern culture is totally tolerant. Tolerance is what we all worship. Now, the Bible isn't intolerant, but there are times to say you don't do that at all. There are times you say that. God says that's wrong. (laughs) And that's one thing we learn just about the general principle of how Paul approaches this. He's not heavy and bossy and legalistic. It's just righteous. And there's a disturbance in this church. It's falling apart. Leaders are into... And there's chaos. And one aspect of it is addressed very straight in these verses. Now, when and if we ever have a problem with disruptive behaviour or things like that, we'll have to learn how to handle that in a similar way. We also need to learn from these verses something of the Bible's view, which is a little bit similar to what I'm just saying, the Bible's view of life and society, God's view, let's put it that way. It isn't quite the same as our modern culture. Thank God, I'd say, but we do need to understand that. God has put an order into society that he expects us to respect. Children are meant to honour and obey their parents, for example. God's made it that way. We are meant to honour and, if we can at all, obey those in government over us, unless what they call us to do is in clear contradiction to God's express will. Like saying you can't worship or you can't preach the gospel. But by and large, our attitude is submissive and respectful to those over us, in government, at work. There is stuff in here written to slaves that well-paid employees would struggle to obey today. We've got to learn to obey it. We've got to learn to be the sort of workers that our boss is delighted to have. We honour, we respect, we cooperate, because that's how God's called us to do. There is an order, God said. And it requires submission by recognising where you are in an appropriate setting, whether it be home, work, church or society. And you act in a way that respects God's order and respects that God has entrusted certain roles to certain people. And that ultimately it's God we keep dealing with. You recognise that. You live by faith in that. It's a faith walk to believe that stuff and live by it and pray. If you treat it as a legalistic rule, you'll go balmy or get bitter. But if you understand that it is what God has said and your Father in heaven is working with you with that awkward boss at work or that difficult parent at home maybe and you've got to work your way through with God, how am I supposed to be respecting or submitting in this situation? That's how the kingdom of God works. And it works like that in church as well and in the area we're touching. So in this and many other ways, the New Testament, in many other passages, the New Testament brings us back to those sort of fundamental order things, the way God's made things. And there is a functional difference, as we keep saying, men and women. Men and women are redemptively equal, but there's a functional difference. The New Testament clearly makes a connection between that truth and leadership in the local church. And you don't need to go any further than looking at the next chapter to see the connection in chapter 3. Now, actually, I'm not going to look at chapter 3 today because chapter 3 we're going to look at, well, in a funny way, Dave Dave Lockyer's preaching next week and Dave Lock's going to pick up a little bit of the last part of chapter 3 and then Guy Miller is preaching on the 6th of January when we set Dave Lockyer in as an elder. So Dave Lockyer's going to be made an elder on the 6th of January. Please, if you're here, be here. And and it'll be good morning, uh, fun and, and important morning. And, uh, and Guy will address some of the eldership subject. I've asked him to look at chapter 3 for us, just to keep us 
covering it, if you like. But when you look at 1 Timothy 3, um, you will see that the, the, the instructions to an elder, particularly, are in an almost an assumption that not, I don't feel they have to be married, by the way, or had children, but an assumption that the model is that of a father in a home. That's the big picture I want you to keep in mind. That there's a sort of parallel between headship in the home and headship in the church. And that's clearly there and elsewhere. That God's design for male headship will boil down to this. That the eldership oversight of the church will be in male hands. And that's what I think comes through clearly for me in this scripture. I could reinforce, I haven't got the time... But I think if you look at 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, it might even be on the screen. Thank you, you don't have to turn to it. At just a little passing sort of exhortation about elders, elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Clearly, directing the affairs of the church and preaching and teaching to the church are two major elements of eldership, as Paul saw it. And, and that would be in harmony with what he's concerned about in these verses. There's a bit of a pattern emerging that he sees the eldership as in male hands and it carries certain roles that, that emphasise that, which are perhaps summarised a little bit in that verse 17. However, with that major point, I think, there in Scripture, we need to also apply these timeless principles about men and women in the church and their life in the broader church, broader church life. We need to apply these principles with a lot of more sensitivity than many of us have done in the past, including me. We need to avoid inconsistencies, which we don't always do. We need to avoid dogmatism, which we don't always do. We need to avoid legalism, which we don't always do. We need to avoid micromanagement, which we don't always do. (laughs) There's been a lot of that over the years. Take a verse like this and then try and work out in, in ridiculous detail what it means where women can speak and couldn't speak. And we need to avoid those things and be far more open to God's general direction. There's a lot we need to learn in our day and age. There's a lot of good things that have gone on in the last 20 or 30 years. And although we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of no difference at all between the sexes, absolute equality at every level in function and role as well as everything else, we need to understand the equality of personhood and redemption, but rejoice in the complementarity of different functions and roles. And then we need to release people, not just women, but men and women, in church life. And I don't think we've done as well as we might. I think we want to still work on it. Church life is impoverished when women's gifts are not used properly. And sadly, that has often been the case. I don't believe that the Bible teaches a woman can never lead in any circumstances. don't believe that at all. I don't believe that a Bible teaches a woman can never teach in any circumstances. I think these are particular ruling oversight of the church and teaching the doctrine, in a sense laying it down a bit, to the church. And there, Paul feels, lines have been seriously crossed. And in Ephesus, quite a major disruption has gone on. Now, I think there are many different levels of teaching. The ones that I just skimmed in the Bible over a few minutes, because I hadn't the time to over-research this, just remind us that the Bible itself has many references to women teaching in different contexts. For example, Titus 2.3. This will go quite quickly if you're working the screen, please, just to go through them quickly. Titus 2.3. Thank you. Just up there, likewise teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderous or addicted to much wine, very practical, but to teach what is good, 
Then the next one, 18, Acts 18, 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. If you look at the rest of the Priscilla and Aquila scriptures, she clearly at least shared quite majorly in what happened. She's often put first in the order. She was quite a, a, a significant player in all of that. Then Proverbs 1.8, just quickly going to the Old Testament. Listen, my son, to your father's instructions. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Proverbs 31.26. She, the, 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 the godly woman, she speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. So actually, the Bible knows that women are going to be able to teach and be gifted to do so often. We just need to work out carefully what we're talking about. When does it violate those fundamental orders? When doesn't it? And I guess we won't always come up with the same answers on that. But we want to try and, and, and hold in harmony the scripture's uh, instruction. I am going to briefly address this because I think it's important. I believe the secondary office of deacon was open to women in the early church. And in that sense, they might have got their act together better than we have. 1 Timothy 3.11, which is the next chapter, it reads, in our translations, in the same way their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. I think that is a very bad translation. I believe it should read, in the same way, women, and then go on. And the the word their, their wives, is not in the Greek. That's just added by the translators. Uh, uh, That word their, you shouldn't have that there. So it would read, in the same way, wives. But the word they've translated, gune, can be wives or women. So they just make a choice what what way they translate it. And it makes much more sense to translate it women. For a lot of reasons. First of all, I'll be very quick. In the same way, usually indicates the beginning of another category. Secondly, why on earth would you have instructions about a deacon's wife and not an elder's wife, seeing that probably an elder's position is more significant overall the church, and if there needs to be a qualification for the wife of a deacon, it's very strange there's no qualification for the wife of an elder. That is very strange, and I don't think that's what it's saying. Clearly, this is a distinct category which applies to certain women, but not women in general. And interestingly enough, clearly, if I'm right, and I'm not the only one who thinks this, if this is women who had an official function in the church, it is actually a reinforcement, in funny way, of the male eldership that it is distinctly said, the women who are deacons, which you don't get that sort of addition put into the eldership qualifications which come earlier. I personally have no doubt in my mind that this is about a role in the church. When Paul writes to Philippians, he writes to the elders and deacons. When he refers to Phoebe, he refers to her as a deacon in the church. Now, unfortunately, the word deacon can just mean servant. So people say somebody's just defining her. But he seems to define her in a very clear way. And uh, I suggest that it's quite a strong case that she was a recognised deacon in the church. I also believe, and in fact it's common sense, that when deacons were appointed in the early church, there was nothing to do with buildings or finances particularly, because they didn't have any buildings. It was primarily a people role. It was primarily a pastoral role. And of course you need women recognised and given some leadership and responsibility, because there will be a lot of women who need to be looked after. And so I believe that there was another role recognised in the church, which we have, but we don't call them deacons. Uh, I, I wonder sometimes if we should explore that. We're just so busy at the moment and barely keeping our head above water with so much going on. I haven't got time to really work this one through. But I 
fundamentally believe we should restore deacons, actually, and we should recognise them as uh, a particular role in the church. And it won't be just... But we do have those sort of people. We have people like Rose and Ange and others who've got clear responsibility. Women, they lead an area of church life and I think they serve us remarkably well and that they need to be recognised and honoured for what they do. And I think you could work at this and do some work on this and work out how you, how you applied it today. But I certainly think it tells us that the early church didn't have n- nothing for women to do. That clearly wasn't true, apart from all the lists of women who worked with Paul in some way. I believe you could, and this probably is for tonight rather than now because of the time, you could talk about all the different ways we need to work this out. And uh, there are many ways. I think there are many ministries uh, in the church that need to develop and use the gifts of women. Some do, some do less than others. I don't think there should be any particular bar in any of these areas. Evangelism, mission, worship, administration, small group leadership, intercession... Uh, obviously various ministries with poor and mercy and working into perhaps even any special categories of life, youth, children, students, areas of expertise where women will bring instruction and teaching appropriate to their gift and the situation. I think the deacon qualifications need to be applied to anybody with responsibility. In other words, the character qualifications are relevant so it's not just gifting, it's character, like it's true of eldership and others. But I think, get that taken on board, there are many things that people could do, women could do. Now, as I'm coming to an end, and I am, I actually want to look at the last verse. I want to say to you, we're going to look more at some of this subject I've just been through by discussing tonight. I'm not going to preach tonight, but we are going to look at it and do some questions and answers. So there'll be feedback. But I actually want to end with verse 15, because it is a a strange verse, but I believe it's an important one to understand. Of course, because it's a difficult verse, people actually have different views of its meaning. But I am very comfortable with what I believe it means. So I am putting my feet firmly down on an interpretation, which I'm personally very comfortable with. But I think it's important we end on it. And you just hear me through on verse 15. You might like to glance at it. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. I think one thing we need to know, sorry about all this this morning, childbearing is not quite how it would read. That, to us, that reads as a simple sort of verbal description. Women will be saved through childbearing. Actually, it literally should read like this. Women will be saved through the childbirth. Women will be saved through the childbirth. It is clearly a special figure of speech, a special sort of term. Now then, when you see that, some people go off on one particular interpretation. This is the one that I'm strongly favourable of. I believe it is a reference to Jesus Christ. I believe it is a reference to the birth of Jesus as the Saviour. And I think Paul, naturally inspired by the Spirit, is just bringing to our minds a very important and precious truth, not irrelevant to this time of year. Just, bef- just after he knows he's written quite uh, a strong thing. His mind has gone to Adam and Eve, and he's obviously referred to Adam and Eve straight away. But when you look at Genesis 3, for example, and verses 15 and 16, you see that Eve was promised that her seed, her seed would stamp on the serpent's head. 
Salvation would come through a woman bearing a seed. Salvation would come through a particular child and the role of childbearing in providing salvation is in Paul's mind, I believe, as he writes this. The word saved, the Greek word translated saved, is only ever used by Paul for redemption from sin to eternal life. Some people in their interpretations here think it should say kept safe. But there is another word for that which Paul uses in other places. He uses them in 2 Timothy 3.11 and verses four, chapter 4 verse 18. And it's in English always translated rescued. It's a different sort of word, a milder word, meaning kept safe, kept rescued. This word is the word he uses for salvation. And I believe he's talking about salvation, saved and redeemed. I believe this is verse is a call to remember that women, like the rest of us, have been saved through the birth of a child, Jesus Christ. And it was a woman alone who had the privilege of bearing the Saviour. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, the Virgin Mary. No man was involved. Paul was aware of that on other occasions. Galatians 4 and verses 4 and 5. I hope they'll go on your screen. Just look quickly at it. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. I believe there is a precious truth here. Salvation could not have happened if there were not women. A woman was needed for salvation. Maybe after referring to Eve, it sounds like if it wasn't for women, we wouldn't sin. Well, that's not true. It was Adam's fault anyway. But actually, if we want to contrast Eve, let's contrast her with Mary. Because no man could bear the Saviour. God's Son, the Saviour of the world, had to be a real human being. But he had also not to be in Adam, where all sin. He hadn't to carry that dreadful seed of Adam. He had to be a new star, a second Adam, a new man. But he had to be out of this humanity in its sin. And the only answer was to find the right woman to bear the second Adam, the second man. And if there weren't any women, there'd be no salvation. If there wasn't that woman, there'd be no salvation. We owe a lot to that woman. And I think that echoes through this. Yes, we do work our salvation out. He's throwing in that last sentence. Faith is expressed in practical holiness. He has to throw that in because that's one of the big battles in Ephesus. And he's right, it's in his mind. If you're really a Christian, it affects how you live. But actually, he's making a reference, I believe, in the context of what he's just said about Adam and Eve, to the glorious fact that although women may be tempted to resent being a woman, or upset at the differences in roles, it's to a woman we owe everything, barring, of course, Jesus himself. Mary bore the Saviour, Jesus Christ. No man could play a part in the incarnation, but a woman did. In fact, she had the greatest honour ever bestowed on any individual human being. Mary experienced the greatest honour ever bestowed on any individual human being. She bore the Son of God. She bore the Saviour. And her womanhood was essential for fulfilling that role. Without a woman, no salvation. And I believe that is a note that Paul puts in there after he's just addressed the issue through Adam and Eve. And I believe at this time of year, 
it's right to remember that. I don't want to turn us all suddenly into worshipping Mary. We don't do that. But we honour who she was. We honour what she stands for. A godly woman. And without the godly woman, the whole process could not have been reversed, which maybe did start with Eve's deception and folly and was then multiplied by Adam's rebellion. But actually, Mary stands as different. We're saved through the childbirth that Mary brought. Amen? So tonight, we'll have a chance to talk and discuss a bit. That's the big stuff. Let's worship the Lord and finish with a song. Thank you, Jim. Can you come up?